Are you looking for truth from God's word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Clarity Christian College, formerly known as Florida Bible College. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to get them out right now. We're going to turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to go through verses 3 through verse 8. And I have to tell you that I'm excited about what I want to share with you because the truths that we're going to hear and learn today are truths that really reverberate in our hearts that are really very much a part of our very, very core being. I've titled today's message, So What's So Good About Good News? Well, for some of you that are just entering into this journey with us on our walk with God, some of us, it might be good for us to know a little bit more about this term, gospel, what it is and what it means. Today, if you go to a lot of what are often known as seeker services, you're going to find that they often don't use the word gospel as much anymore, and they'll put in that phrase the word message or the message of Jesus or the story of Jesus. Personally, I don't have a great deal of problem with that as long as whatever word you use, gospel or message, that you explain what it means and what you understand it to mean would be what the Bible has to say it means. And so that's why it's important to let the Bible define itself so we understand what the word gospel really means. Today, you'll even use it in our own language. We might even say, you know, that's the gospel truth. Well, when we say that, what do we mean by that gospel truth? How does that fit into where we're really going? So let me define for us what is the gospel for those of you that hear that term and you want to know what it means. Biblically, it's coming from a passage of Scripture found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, basically verses 1 through 5 or 6. Those that have been involved in maybe Christianity a long time, they would like to tell you the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's a quick answer, although I don't want to split a hair on it. I don't know if it's entirely accurate. It could mean that the gospel is the death, burial, resurrection, and that he was seen by others after he rose again from the dead. But I think technically, though, the gospel has to fit into what, it, what is the gospel? Why did it happen? What's the purpose of it? It's when Jesus came, and here it is. He died on the cross, and he rose again from the dead. If he didn't die, you wouldn't have a gospel. If he died, but he didn't rise again from the dead you wouldn't have a gospel. You had to have the death and the resurrection of Christ. Then what's this being buried and then being seen by others? Well, how does that fit in? Well, that's very important because you see, if you don't bury someone, you don't have a death. I have not buried anyone alive yet. And all the funerals that I've done, and I looked in the casket or I looked at the urn, none of those folks came out of the casket or came out of the urn. They were dead. And so what happens is when Jesus died, the proof of his death was that you buried him. But then again, the proof of a resurrection, how do we know someone resurrected from the dead unless you see him alive after he was dead? And so now you have the proof of the resurrection that he was seen by others. So technically, the gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ. The burial proves the death, and the being seen by others proves the resurrection. So that is the gospel, and that's what it means and how significant it is. Now, you have the word gospel, and what does that actually mean in itself? Just the word. What is the gospel? Death and resurrection. But what does it actually mean? Actually, it comes from a Greek word, euangelion. Now, for some of you, that's ting-tang, walla-walla-bing-bang. That doesn't mean much to you, I understand. But the word euangelion really means glad tidings or good news. So if I just said the gospel, it's the good news. If I choose to use the word the message of Christ, then I would be talking about the good news of Christ. Well, even that, what's so good news about that? What may be good for you news may not be good for someone else. So how do we define what is the good news? 
Well, if we went through the Bible from the Old Testament through into the New Testament, you're going to find that the good news is found in the person and the work of Christ. So it's all wrapped around Christ. Did you know that Christ is also used in a Greek term as the evangel, that he is the one who is the center focus of the gospel of the good news? So what's so good news about Jesus Christ? Now listen carefully. Here's what it is. It's that the good news is that Jesus, when he died, he was buried, rose again, seen of others, that he had victory over death because he died and he came back to life. He had victory over sin, that no sin could keep him in the grave. He had victory over Satan, which means no matter what Satan would throw at Christ, that nothing could keep him from resurrecting, dying and coming back again, paying the complete payment for sin. So the good news is Jesus died and paid for everyone's sin, and he showed us by being alive afterwards and others seeing him. Now, how does that good news fit for us? The good news is when Jesus died, he paid for my sin and your sin. When he rose again from the dead, it was all done. Victory over death, victory over sin, victory over Satan. That is absolutely good news. If I want to make it real simple, it's this. Jesus did all the work, so I don't have to do any work to go to heaven. Jesus forgave me of all sin, so there's nothing I can do to earn my way to heaven. Jesus promises to me eternal life by faith alone, and I could know I have eternal life. That's good news. So here's the good news for you. If you go through your life and you look at your life and you see areas that you know that are sins, far more than mistakes now, these aren't just little boo-boos or uh uh-ohs. These are things where you know that you have broken the moral law of God. You have sinned, and therefore you need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior, and that is the gospel. This morning, the pastors and I were in our office together, and we were praying, and as we prayed for you and for others in our church and those that were having special needs, We also reminded ourselves in prayer of this very important fact, and I'd like you maybe to catch this with me. We who are pastors, we've been saved a long time, we're in the ministry, our whole life is revolving around the gospel. You cut our wrists, we'll probably bleed the gospel. But like anything else in life, we we can, and I hope you would not, but we can, we get so caught up in doing so many Christian things that the gospel becomes a part of our life but does not become the clarion call core value of our life. We begin to get moving away from the gospel. Intellectually, orthodox, sound doctrine, we know the gospel. But we don't let it become the very important part of our life that it becomes everything. In other words, we become... um, how can I say, numb to the gospel, if I could use that phrase. We come to a point, when we talk about the gospel, it's like, oh, hum, that's the gospel, we know it, it's important, very important for the Christian faith, but we've lost its impact in our life. And our prayer this morning as pastors is that, even though we're involved in doing a lot of things, that we never move away from seeing the essentialness of the gospel, and to see that that's the core of it. For example, when you ask yourself, are you Jesus-centered? Is Christ the center of our life? We would call that, here's a heavy word, Christocentric. Is Christ at the center of our life? We also ought to be able to say we are gospel-centered because the gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ. And if Christ is at the center of my life, then the gospel should be at the very center of my life and how important that is. Now, some of us, we look at the gospel as just another event in our world of life. For example, we'll watch television, and we have that little remote control, and I know most of you guys probably have that at the side of your chair there, and you're flipping through that, so we'll flip and we'll watch a sports program. We'll flip and watch a news program. We'll flip for just a moment and maybe see something where they're trying to sell you some jewelry or something. We flip again, and we see Billy Graham preaching the gospel. We flip again, and we move into a reality program. We flip again. And in other words, what happens is all the things, the stuff of life, 
is on a screen equal to the gospel, and people just slide right through that. Okay, that's religious. Leave that. I don't want that. I want to watch sports. I'm tired of sports. I want to see what's going on with news. And it becomes just such a, 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 an average thing. What happens then is that we've reduced the gospel from being an eternal message to something that is nothing more than a boring present message that does not relate to our life. Remember, everything that we have, everything that we have for the hope of heaven is centered around the very purpose of the gospel. If I had the most passionate prayer for you and me today would be that we would not become immune to the purpose and the power of the gospel. Do you know that in Romans chapter 1, and they're having a great study in a Sunday school class on that, in verse 16 says that we should not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the very power of our salvation, the very power of our existence is found in the gospel. It is almost like a mystical, magical bullet of the gospel that has so much power in it. In fact, when you begin to debate issues of religion and Christianity with people... They will really not know. They cannot know the things of God until they've trusted Christ as Savior. And to do that, they have to go through the gospel. They have to trust in Christ who died and rose again. That's the gospel. And once they do that, it opens up the Spirit of God into their life. And now they have the capacity to begin to understand what God has to say. So everything begins with the gospel. When we die and we go to heaven, it ends with the gospel. Our whole life is centered around the gospel. So you hear me say that over and over again. That gospel is the good news that Jesus died, yes, but he rose again, yes, for the victory over sin, Satan, and very hell itself. And when we engage into that gospel, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, then we enter into that very thing with Christ. We call that the identification principle. We've identified with Christ. That's what water baptism is. It shows outwardly what we've done inwardly when we identified with Christ. We are identifying with, here it is, the gospel. And so that's why I title this message today, What's So Good About the Good News? Actually, that concept of the gospel is really found right here in Colossians chapter 1. Would you allow me for just a moment to take a few seconds here, and I want to read through our passage, and then I'm going to start taking it apart expositionally here. So follow along in your notes, if you will, and it'll be right there. And you just follow along as I read it to you. It says this. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Circle the word gospel there, because that's the central thought through this whole passage. It says, which has come to you, what has the gospel, as if the gospel has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it the gospel is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learn from Epaphras, what, the gospel, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ, the gospel on your behalf, who also declare to us your love in the spirit, and I'll add, because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and how important that really is. Well, how does this connect to this particular context? All right, this is important. If you recall, the people in Colossae were facing four major false teachings. One of them was a false teaching that we would like to call um, uh, asceticism. Asceticism is what we might call the false sacrifice. It's where we think we have to sacrifice so much and then maybe God will be happy with us. And then we have what we call angelism. Angelism is the worship of angels, and we would call that false worship. In other words, we created our own objects to worship that are apart from what the Bible says. 
And then we have uh, issues in our life that we call it false thinking. And that would be Gnosticism, where we think improperly from what God says in the Word. And, of course, we always have false works, doing works that will never get us to heaven. And so what's happened in that church at Colossae are the very same things that are happening here in Honolulu. And here's what I found. As I read through Scripture, this is my opinion now, and then I'll tell you the answer. I believe that what God did when the New Testament church was being planted, this is what I believe, that when the New Testament church was planted, in those very formidable years of the New Testament church, God allowed Satan to throw everything that he could at the church. In other words, all that false teaching, all that junk that was out there. So that at the new church, as the Bible was being written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God could say, all right, here's what Satan can throw at you and will not be victorious over the church. And he says, now I'm going to respond to Satan's attack in the first century. And he did that by concluding the New Testament. All right, so he coupled it to the Old Testament. He then brought in the New Testament, and he used that now as the weapon against all the false teaching that Satan would throw against it. So now we who live 2,000 years later, we don't have to doubt the same teachings that went on then are the same false teaching today. The difference might be it's packaged differently. It's got more technicolor in it, more slickness in there, different style preaching. But all the same false teaching is there. And so what we don't need to do is we don't need to go for more training or more teaching in new truth that's just coming down from God. God says everything that Satan has in his bag of worms, he threw at the New Testament church that ever existed. So whatever is today was back then. So the Word of God that worked back then, for that truth then, is, or that those heirs then, is the same truth in the Word of God for today. So that's why I don't have to think, is Satan going to come up with something else? Bottom line is this. Satan's false teaching is this. It's of works or grace and works. The New Testament teaching, it is by grace alone through faith alone. Present day teaching, same thing. It is by faith alone. So we don't need any new truth to combat the air that's out there. It's just going to be packaged differently, but it's the same air. So this word of God works for us today. So what's so good about the good news that we have? So let's begin to look at it. All right, number one, the good news is received by faith alone in Christ. Would you look at that verse we have underneath that line? Received by faith alone in Christ. Here's what you read. All right, would you read it out loud with me if you can? Would you read it right off your paper out loud or your Bible? Here's what it says. Read it with me. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your good works in Christ Jesus. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. Let me read it again and you read it with me. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith and good works in Christ Jesus. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. Why? Because good works don't save us. Faith and works don't save us. It is only faith in Christ. And that's why we said we're receiving it by faith alone in Christ. Now we have to define what is faith. So let me try to define it for you in one sentence. Faith is being convinced that something is true and then trusting it. Let me give that to you again. Faith is being convinced that something is true and then trusting in it. All right. Some of you that have been around a while, you've seen me do this illustration. But because we love our guests that are here, they may not have seen this illustration. So let's look at this chair for just a moment. All right. As you look at me and I look at this chair, am I right now demonstrating my faith in that chair? Yes or no, everyone? No, I'm not. 
So for me to place my faith in this chair, first of all, I have to have knowledge. My knowledge has to be that this is a chair. I have to have the information that it was designed for the purpose for someone to completely sit in it or rest in it or trust that it will hold them up. So I have knowledge now. But even though I have knowledge that that's what it was designed and I could sit in this chair and it's supposed to hold me up, am I now modeling my faith in this chair? Am I? So no, I don't have the full understanding of faith. So number one, faith involves saving faith, knowledge. I have to know this. That's why you and I must get the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus died and rose again by faith alone. You go to heaven. That knowledge has to go to the world. If they never know that, they will die totally ignorant of what it takes to get to heaven. But even the knowledge doesn't save anyone. There are a lot of universities that teach comparative religion, and they can accurately explain what Christianity is. Yet at the same time, the teacher does not fully trust in Christ. So he doesn't have saving faith. He just have knowledge. All right, now number two. Knowledge means that I not only believe that this is a chair, I have information, but I also believe that it's true. That really is a chair. And frankly, I do know that it can hold up people. How do I know? It held up Miss Mary, who led us in worship. It held up others. It's holding all of you up right now, okay? So I know that it was designed to be a chair to hold up people. I also believe that it's true. It's a chair because you're doing it, and it's working. Now, am I now modeling my faith in that chair to hold me up, yes or no? So I can have knowledge of it. I can believe that it's even true, but I am not personally trusting in it. All right, now let's do this. I believe it's a chair. I know it can hold up people. It's really a chair. Now, am I trusting this chair to hold me up? No, I'm really not. Because if one of you, some of our teenagers here, want to be real frisky, don't you dare. They'll come over here and kick this chair. I'm going to not fall down. You know why? Because part of my weight is on this leg. So if they do knock the chair out from under me, it doesn't hold me up any longer. But that's okay. I'm holding myself up. So my question is this. Am I modeling before you faith in this chair? Yes or no? No. Now that's where the rub is because a lot of people, they'll say, yes, you're trusting that chair. But when you push them a little bit, they're still trusting in themselves to either get saved or even, here it is, trusting themselves to stay saved by doing other things once they've trusted in Christ so they don't get kicked out again. Now watch what I do. Now, am I trusting this chair to hold me up? Yes or no? So if one of them kicked this chair out from under me, where do you think I'm going to go? Down, okay, right on the ground, mashed pastor, right there, okay. Now that being the case, that's what we call saving faith. I have information, I believe it's to be true, but I've activated one other step, I've trusted in that. So that's where this thing is, and I, I hope that we all got that. If you will go back, if you will, for just a moment, what is the only object that can save us? It's not a what, it's a who, and it's Jesus Christ. So would you mark that down? Only one object can save us. Now, how do I know that? Would you go back to the verse? Those of you that are students of the word, and that's why people like to come and get these, these teachings, because we've got to go back to the word. It says this. You don't need to read it. Just follow along the verse. It says, praying always for you since we heard of your faith, period. Is that what the verse says? They heard of faith? No. They heard of your faith in Christ. Would you underline either in your Bible or on the piece of paper there the word in all right, that's a preposition, and then you circle the name Jesus Christ, that's the object. So what saves you is not, watch this, watch this, watch this, faith doesn't save you, it's the object of your faith that saves you. Faith brings you to this, but it's not until you have the right object. So if you have faith 
in yourself, you won't go to heaven. If you have faith in a religious system, you won't go to heaven. If you have faith in your honesty that you don't know what to believe, you won't go to heaven. But you have to have your faith alone in Jesus Christ. I didn't write this stuff, folks. God did. That's why it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So let's go to number two. So that's good news. It's by faith, not by works. Hallelujah. So have you put your faith in Christ as your Savior? Number two, the good news causes Christians to love others. So here's what else he heard. He also heard of their faith, but he also said, I have heard of your love for all the saints. Now, if you want to, you can circle the word love. It's there emboldened for you. Then it says, for all the saints. Now, we can make a big deal about loving other believers. We know that Jesus was very high on that fact. He says, love everybody, but especially those who are believers, because that shows the world that you're my disciple. So the world has a right to look at us to see how authentic we are as a believer based on how we demonstrate genuine love for other believers. Then other times in Scripture says to do good unto everybody, but especially to the household of faith. So there's something a little bit more post-toasty-ish. That's the phrase for you. A little bit more for Christians that we're to love one another. But that's not the operative word, not the saints, the believers. I want you to circle or underline the word all, for all. That means that there ought not to be any believer in Christ that would not be an object of our affection and love. And I don't mean romance now, but I'm talking about love with its working clothes on that we're going to serve them. So the good news causes Christians to love others. What's the good about good news? It gives us a unique capacity for us to love one another. If you will, look at the next verse I put there for you, 1 John 3, 23. This is so cool, it says, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Where did he talk about that? It didn't say just believe. It doesn't say behave. It doesn't say believe and behave. It says believe on his name. In other words, you're trusting in Christ. Then you have and love one another as he gave us commandments. So God says, I want you to trust in my son. But very quickly attached to that is an immediate love affair that you have with other people, particularly other believers in Jesus Christ and how absolutely critical that is. So look up here for just a second, if you will. Let me see if I can demonstrate with my arms for a moment. When you come to faith in Christ, when you hear this message like the people of Colossae did, they heard the message going to heaven was by faith alone in Christ, the gospel is Jesus died, rose again, that's good news. Trust in him, you'll have everlasting life. When you trust in Christ as your Savior, according to other books in the Bible, God wanted us to know when I trust in him as my Savior, what happens then is I am born again with a new nature. Secondly, the Holy Spirit comes inside of me. That's key, that's key. I become a partaker of his divine nature. So let's look at those three. A new nature. What is that new nature? It's a divine nature. I have the Holy Spirit who is God inside of me. I also now have this new nature where Christ lives in me, the hope of glory. Now stay with the train of thought. If the Bible says that God is light, he's light. The Bible says he is the God of love or God is love, then he personifies love. So if I have trusted Christ and I'm a partaker of his divine nature, which is love, the Holy Spirit who is part of God, love, Jesus Christ is in me, the hope of glory, demonstration of love, all that loveness of God is inside of me. So if I truly trusted Christ as my Savior, very soon I ought to now have a new viewpoint of other people, that I now look at them to love them. Now, let me hasten to say this. Because some of you will say, I know he's a Christian, but he is not acting very lovely, loving toward whoever might be out there. Your mind would say, well, then he probably isn't a Christian. 
Well, we need to be very careful that we're not fruit inspectors. God didn't tell us to do that, to inspect everybody else to see if they've got the love fruit in them. So I have to be very careful that I don't immediately begin to question that person's salvation. What I would like to do is to say this. Instead of that, look at your own heart. Did you truly trust Christ as Savior? If you're having difficulty in loving the unlovely, the irregular people, as Florence Littauer calls them, then what we have to do is don't dig into your own ability to love. Don't dig into your history and your your family and how they love people. Don't dig into the model of other people and how they loved or didn't love. What you dig into is the very love capacity of God, that nature that gives you the ability to do that. Now, this is what's so cool about this. This church at Colossae, they had faith in the Lord. They had love for other people. And Paul heard about it. Do you know why he heard about it? Because he wasn't there. Now, they didn't have emails. They didn't have telephones. So someone had to go there, stay there long enough to watch those people. This wasn't just some little flighty compliment. This is a real analysis. These people had faith and they demonstrated it with their love for other people. And it was so evident and it was so easy to see that the person who saw this, which in my opinion was Epaphras, that he had to go back to Paul and say, Paul, you won't believe this. Those people have genuine faith, and it's shown by their love for other people. And so Paul says, you know what, before I hit all this false teaching, he says, I'm going to spend time complimenting those people. This is Joe Pons, and I want to thank you for listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Clarity Christian College. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It's the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. That's makeitclear.org. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please email us at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. That's tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear.